Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Source Day story with my friend, Tom Kiley. How's it going, Tom? Great, Joe. Pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, well, I appreciate your time. We were babbling on about college football before we hit record, and uh, that could have taken a long time. So, uh, Tom, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at today. Yeah, thank you. So, Tom Kiley and CEO and co-founder of Source Day. We're headquartered here in Austin, Texas started in 2013, but launched the business in 2015 uh, out of stealth mode. Excited to be in the Austin area with a great talent pool and been able to, to really scale the business uh, from where we are today. Yep. Well, what does Source Day do? Absolutely. So Source Day is an extension of the ERP system. So think Oracle's, SAP's, Microsoft's, NetSuite, Epicor, Infor's. Those, those systems today for manufacturers, for distributors, direct-to-consumer retail organizations uh, are used to, to drive the, the purchase order and procurement demand for their parts and pieces or finished goods. Uh, so we're an extension of those ERPs that drive supply chain procurement collaboration on a real-time basis between the buying side and their suppliers globally so they can be in sync on what's coming in when and what's not more importantly so they can actually manage risk to a real-time impact of their business to fulfilling their customers orders right so one of the things when we were prepping i mean to make it real simple everyone says collaboration and it absolutely is about collaboration but you guys fix po's and po's are wrong more than 50 percent of the time right yeah, it's, it's pretty alarming. I think even you know to our largest customer, it's a Fortune 50 company in the high tech space. And they were living in Excel and email to manage purchase order changes. After a purchase order gets created, it gets sent to suppliers. And then the parts generally just show up when they show up. And there's very little visibility due to the volume and the scale of disruption. Right. Disruption can come in many forms. It can be from the supply side. They're either not able to, to meet the demand. They're going to short ship the demand. They're going to cancel the order altogether. Prices may change, parts may change. And then on the buy side, inventory levels change, lead times are changing, customer forecasts and sales are changing. All of these, you know, changes impact customers' ability to meet revenue targets. And and I know there's probably some transportation and logistics and warehousing people saying, yeah, but that's not my problem. I'm a supply chain guy. I don't care. It is our problem because the reason your shipper doesn't call and say pick up on Tuesday, they wait till Thursday afternoon for the Friday shipment is because they can't get the POs right. Correct. And so this is a tremendous supply. And by the way, in this, as we get, and hopefully end COVID times, knock on wood, I said that a year ago, but I'm hoping this is truly it. We are leaving COVID. During COVID times, we realized there was all sorts of disruptions and all sorts of price increases. We have the inflation problem going on right now. Hopefully the Ukraine thing resolves itself in the coming weeks without it being making even more problems. Absolutely. But we have disruption. It's not going to ever go away in our supply chain. And we have tons of POs, little changes where it might have had 10 things on it, but now all of a sudden the price has to raise on one of them. Yeah. And, and that holds up the PO, which holds up the shipment. And so if we're going to get, if we're going to, Anytime you have a problem in the supply chain, 
you look upstream, right? It's you usually can't solve your problem in the in your in your silo, so to speak. It's always a little upstream. And in the case of shipping, it's often the POs can't get reconciled. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you know what I speak to analysts and, and our customers and their executives about is some of their biggest problems. They they kind of point to logistics and last mile. The reality is the entire process from purchase order demand planning, inventory management, sourcing all the way through to last mile it is really all tied together. And I like to talk to organizations about the only time that you can really impact change on last mile on time delivery is having you know real time visibility to the changes that are going to impact when the shipper is going to be able to come pick it up, right. when it's going to be available. So we, we give our customers the ability to see challenges and misses and risks before they actually happen so that they can proactively go focus in on those single parts, those purchase order lines or, or those SKUs that are going to be the problem and not look at the whole at once. Right. And this is uh, in, a, in the transportation logistics business. Increasingly, we have automation that allows us to manage more shipments with fewer people. And that's going to continue. Automation is going to continue. We're going to have more, more, more AI that's going to make decisions for us. That's all good. And what becomes of all of the people in the middle being intermediaries? We're going to become those people at the high level saying, I, I'm, I'm going to help streamline the process. Not just getting a truck. That is increasingly... Super important, don't run it, but it's increasingly going to be less important as technology plays a bigger role in that. And I think where we can add value is to understand the process from beginning to end, order to cash. And that's understanding problems like what's going wrong with the PO? How do we get this to go faster? Because again, you can't solve some of the problems in the logistics and transportation space in the transportation and logistics space. We, we hear it all the time. I hear in my podcast probably once every few weeks. If we could just get the uh, the shipper to call us a day or two earlier on these loads, we could save them a lot of money. And we don't do it. And they don't do it, not because they're just being lazy or slow. They're doing it because they're trying to reconcile everything. And, they, and very often, PO problems. Yeah, they're living in ar- archaic systems, right? And I, you know, one of the things that you know, cut you off there, but I, I wanted to really no, mention no, is uh, that you know our, our platform enables suppliers to create real-time advanced ship notifications. So, in those ASNs that they're creating, it shows specifically down to the quantity per line across potentially multiple purchase orders that they would put into a single ASN. So now, uh, you know, a buyer upstream has visibility to what's coming but more importantly you know the freight carrier and logistics side has visibility days or weeks in advance of what needs to be shipped and what to expect and they can make more strategic decisions on you know ltl full truck ocean air that's going to save them money yep yep so tom good stuff i want to switch gears for a minute tell us a little bit about you where'd you grow up where'd you go to school give us some career highlights before you started source day yeah, thank you. So I was born in native Texan, born in Dallas, Texas. Uh, however, I've been in Austin for 32 years, 33 years now, and, and have obviously seen a lot of change 
just through the, the growth of, of our city. But my, my career goes all the way back to my first role, which was uh, working as an IT assistant. Wait, tell us a little bit of you as a kid. Where did you, did you play sports? you have part-time jobs? Yeah, so absolutely. So I was big into sports growing up, played soccer, and basketball, and baseball. And ultimately through friends and, and uh, just kind of obsession, I, I actually kind of became a bit of a swimmer you know, starting in middle school through high school and swam on multiple club teams. And we actually started our high school swim team and, and then summer leagues. And nice with that, I kind of started, I guess, my, my first, you know, pre, pre 16 year old job of coaching swim school, coaching kids and, and also becoming a lifeguard at my local pool. I'm too damn pale to be a lifeguard, but I remember I I remember I grew up. We had a, my first house. We had a pool, but then we moved and we lived by this big, huge pool. So we didn't have our own pool, but we had this humongous pool. And uh, me and my friends would pride ourselves. We would swim every single day of the summer, oh, yeah. every single day. And it's funny because you know, as I get older, I'm like, oh, I got to lose weight. Never had to worry about losing weight when you swim for three <laughs> hours a day. Oh. And and it, for a long time, it was, you know, just for playing. They had a big pool that you dive off. And then they tore it down and built all these Olympic-size um, pools and the diving boards and all that. Not as much fun, but uh, fantastic exercise, what I needed. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it definitely changed my life. And, you know, the, swimming gives you a lot of time to think. <laughs> you, you can't do much other, right? They're, nowadays, they have these waterproof headphones. But yeah, yeah. swimming, it was you're in your own mind for four hours a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's fantastic. So you went to Texas A&M? Would you go there to study? I did. Yeah. Being a native Austinite was was a little interesting, not going to the University of Texas, but was was kind of raised in Aggie, went to A&M games growing up and kind of fell in love with the culture and the campus and so traditions. Te- University of Texas is in Austin, right? It is. Yeah, our rival. Yeah. And so how far away is College Station where Texas A&M is? About an hour and a half east of Austin, between Austin and Houston. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because we have this here in Michigan with Michigan and Michigan State, and we have a lot of other humongous schools that people don't hear as much about, but they all have 20, 25,000 people, Saginaw Valley. But they, it's funny when you grow up a fan of one school, but then you don't get in that school or for whatever reason you choose to go to another. And I know Texas and probably Texas A&M, the bar just keeps getting higher and higher. So like, I grew up a University of Michigan fan. I could not get into University of Michigan to save my soul. I couldn't have gotten in there after school. Now, I did get my master's there, but I got it, um, I was like 30-something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, congrats on, on that. I mean, I, honestly, today, I don't think I could get into to either A&M or UT. Which is, which is I, I would say, anyone, any professors listening, your programs are two steps below a joke because – those schools were created to educate, not to impress, not to not to make a list of the most prestigious schools in America, not to educate people from other countries, to educate kids who are 20 miles away. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and these are state schools. Yeah, I, I saw they call this a joke because it is. You would have an easier time getting into Oklahoma than to Texas because you would have to pay out of state in Oklahoma. Absolutely. And they do that. That's the game they're playing now. And again. I love I love college sports, but college drives me crazy sometimes. You and me both. So anyway, what did you study over there at Texas A and M? Yeah, I think like most young college students, I, I didn't quite know what I wanted. Bounced between wanting to go into you know construction management and build homes. Uh, I grew up 
working with my hands and wood shops and, and doing construction with my father and, and then went to AM having you know done a whole bunch of IT and software and hardware through some, some, some side jobs in high school. So I kind of got obsessed in the, the, t- the tech world and started out as a Not computer a bad science. thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I think ended up being all right. You know, I started out as a computer science major, quickly realized uh, how bad I was at trig and, and all the advanced math classes. And I quickly pivoted into an industrial distribution engineering program, which it, it's, it's in some schools. I think Purdue has a big program, University of uh, A&M and, and uh, many others, I think. You know, it's really around manufacturing and logistics and supply chain. So really enjoyed that. Loved the challenges behind supply chain and thought there was a tremendous amount of opportunity behind it. Your time has come, my friend. Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so it, it, it is very interesting because I, I've said this in my podcast for it, probably 25 years ago. Some recruiter called me and kept saying, we need a supply chain guy like you, supply chain. He said supply chain like five times and I wrote it down and I'm just circling it. What the F is a supply chain? And then I called a friend who's a recruiter. I go, yeah, somebody's recruiting me. They kept calling me a supply chain guy. And they goes, yeah, you're, you're a supply chain. I go, what is that? And he goes, you know, in automotive, we would say we have suppliers, right? purchasing, we have logistics, but we never called any of that supply chain. And we had production. We had all the, we had all sorts of, so the, it's very much a large supply chain business, as I always call automotive the biggest, baddest supply chain on earth. Right. But we never called it that. And so so anyway, you, you picked the right program for the time. So give us a, just a few of your career stops before you started uh, Source Day. Yeah, it's my first job, obviously, being in Austin, Texas, I came home and found myself at Dell. They're based in Austin? They are. Round Rock, Texas, just north of Austin. And, you know, one of the largest manufacturers at the time and, and probably still uh, today in in the area. Now with Tesla here, of course. But, you know, I, I ended up in their second shift workstations manufacturing line where they were assembling Fancy. workstations and desktops and worked worked four hours or four days a week, 12 hour days until something went wrong. And then we would work 12 hour days, seven <laughs> days a week for three weeks. And, and what I learned quickly is, you know, no matter how big the company is and how many tools and systems and people you have, you, you still have supply chain issues because they're outside your four walls. You can't control them. So I learned learned a lot, did a lot of Six Sigma and, and lean manufacturing practices and However, they, they eventually moved all of that overseas. So I had to find myself a new career. Yeah, I, I bet they're moving it back now. Let's hope. Yep. So where, where else did you work before you started Source Day? Yeah, so I, I continued on at Dell and got into enterprise software and hardware and learned a lot about technology and really kicked off my sales career, which, which led me down the path of working at a couple of companies that Dell acquired and helped kind of be the subject matter expert, integrating you know, those solutions in, into Dell and helping other sellers inside of Dell learn how to sell those, pl- those products. And that kind of got me into this view of looking at startups. And, and the two companies they acquired were pretty early stage companies. Getting to meet the founders and learning their journeys, I became pretty infatuated with that and launched my first company in 2008 called Right Gift. Bootstrapped. I worked, you know, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. every night, just out of pure passion, with my developer team over in Bangladesh, just iterating and building and overbuilding and overspending and making a lot of mistakes before I ever thought the product was actually ready to go to market. Learned learned a lot about what not to do in that. But after that, spent a couple of uh, other career roles in enterprise software sales, primarily in integration middleware technology. 
so you so you learned where things are broken. So when when and why did you start Source Day? And who's your partner? Who's your co-founder over there? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the the roles that I found myself in after Dell was recruited to a competitor selling integration software, where I met Clinton Cree, my co-founder. He had a ten year tenure at a manufacturing company here in. Uh, Austin, Texas area, where he had the same challenges that I was seeing, but he created, you know, this original vision of there's got to be a better way. So he started to, you know, dream up uh, over those 10 years, a platform of creating more visibility and collaboration with the suppliers outside of his organization that were continuously impacting their ability to meet revenue. So he and I met and I spoke a little bit about my, my journey of right gift and you know, how we built that from the ground up. And, you know, he shared his vision of Source Day. And I just said, you know, this is too good to be true. I've got a supply chain background and passion. And I think, you know, we were meant to go build this. So leaving Dell for that company was, I think, out of pure luck to meet, to meet Clint. Right. So the problem you guys are solving, and again, I put it in as plain as English as you can. What problem are you solving for your customers? Real-time visibility of parts. You know, the number one question procurement people and, you know, organizations that are producing a finished product, whether it's a consumer product all the way up to aerospace, oil, gas, automotive, whatever it may be, shop floor and sales are always asking, where are my parts? Where's my stuff? Where are my parts? And, And as a buyer, you're the unsung hero that's living in Excel and email, and you've got hundreds, maybe thousands of vendors across hundreds to tens of thousands of PO lines that you may be managing in any given day. And you've got to go comb through every single line item that might be tied to a job order or sales order and find out where are the parts so we can go build this this order. Right. And until even every single penny part comes in, no matter how small it is, you can't ship that completed order and recognize the revenue. Right. And what we want is we want from order to cash, from the time I get an order to the time I get the cash for that. I want to take that order to cash time and compress it. So you mentioned absolutely. You mentioned that you did some lean in the past, and so have I. I did tons of value stream mapping workshops, which is just really looking from that order to cash time and saying, how do I take out all the waste? How do I make this go faster? How do I make it go faster? And if you can make it go faster, you're making more money. And taking out waste and automating things and using better technology, and I always say a discussions like this technology and software is just a process in a box and right. it forces people to follow it so the only way i can make this do this process is use this software so by by uh, using that software i followed the process and i i think we lose that because now software is so it's everywhere but order to cash you know if your technology is not taking you faster I'm making it faster, better, cheaper Then it's not the right software. And I think, I think in the supply chain, and again, that we all serve in the transportation logistics space, they're always looking to us to say, Hey, can you, can you expedite this? Can you make this go faster, 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 faster? And really the, again, the answer sometimes is upstream is guys, if you could just get these orders right earlier, get that order right on Monday rather than on Wednesday. Right. We don't have to expedite. And and again, anybody who's listening, this isn't criticism of anybody because it's an impossibly hard. To, I talked to my daughter. She was in procurement at one of the vaccine companies. And she said, yeah, like POs being off is every day, all day. It's 50%. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's alarming, right? Again, I go back to the unsung heroes of manufacturing and and what I often call the miracle of manufacturing, right? Everyone is chasing just in time. And, you know, with, with some parts, you can do VMI, vendor-managed inventory, vendor-owned inventory, and, and you can really have the supplier own the success of that. But, you know, if you're not large enough or if you're not doing enough volume or if they're, you know, strategic, you know, components that are very technical and, and one-off, right. you know, you, you're going to have long lead times. And without predictability on, you know, the, the, those lead times and the supplier's ability to meet those lead times, you're really left just chasing your tail as a buyer right. trying to figure out how am I going to get these things in faster. Most organizations just overbuy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the way, um, Throughput has been on my podcast. Throughput AI has been on my podcast. And they talk about 30% of what we make never adds value, never gets to the customer. So we, we, we create a lot of inventory. And by the way, you know, as we be, look towards more sustainable business, the either it's going to be in it's either we're going to do it ourselves or the government's going to step in but 80% of greenhouse gases come from the supply chain so when you say i created 30% extra stuff so it could die on uh, die on a shelf somewhere or at some point it becomes obsolete it went to the garbage and i built it and no one ever paid me for it yep and by the way anytime you go into an old um, not just an old go into any distribution center or manufacturing there is always stuff that you know is never coming off the shelves. It's obsolete. Scrap. But but what happens is somebody has to it has to raise their hand and say, "My bad." <laughs> and and yeah. by the way, if it's Tom in charge of that area, he's not doing it. He gets transferred to the next job, and then when I get there, I go, "Hey, Tom left all this crap here. Get it off the shelves." And now it now I don't have to take blame, and and you're down the street. Absolutely. So you know, that's why everyone has to quit their job every two years so we can clean out. But so, yeah, I think we want to be able to that order to cash. We want it to go faster, better, cheaper. And I think what that requires is collaboration. And it also requires us to be able to make better and quicker decisions and automate decisions around the stuff you're talking about, which is sometimes POs. If they're, if they're off, help me get them right and help me get them right quickly, right? That's it's uh, alarming, right? I still just continue to to talk to executives that you know they they have zero visibility to what's coming inbound and when and, and how much, right? More importantly, is on time and full or OTIF is you know one of the the sought after you know metrics of yep. you want to have ninety ninety five percent plus on time and full, and if you're relying on Excel and email and, and at the rate of change of fifty two percent, and at the height of COVID, we saw over sixty five percent PO change rate. You know, you have no ability to predict anything but failure. Yeah, and so why are those PO changes? I know you said it, I think I already asked you that, but tell me again, why are PO change? And first off, just for those who are uh, not in that, what is a PO, a purchase order? What is that? And what, what function does it play in their organization? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, the, the actual technical concept of a purchase order is, you know, the, the, the ERP has what's called the MRP, the Material Resource Planning yep. uh, or, or APS, right? And it's it's what's driving demand in most cases. And, and that demand is being driven by sales forecasts, sales, actual business, inventory levels, lead times, bombs, bill of materials, and, and all these other components that are factoring into, you know, how do we make sure we have the right components at the right time to assemble and staff and tool our lines? You're trying to align 
you're trying to align supply and demand. And so you might say, hey, the, the demand is for this many of this type of product, this many red sweaters. And you say, well, I can only make that many red sweaters. How many blue sweaters do you need? Well, I've got inventory for all the blue sweaters. We can make the blue sweaters today. So, so it's that constant adjustment of what I can actually do versus what the market really wants. Alignment. And, it's, and you know, my co-founder, Clint, would always tell his team members this, right? We can always have more people work longer hours and more days and, and the machines can work all the time, right? But if you don't have the parts to, to build the, the orders that you need to build, if you have the parts to build orders that you don't need to build, you, you, you kind of balanced your inventory and you've got problems, right? You, you can't actually hit revenue targets. So now you've risked, you know, losing customers. So a purchase order is, is really, you know, it's, a, it's typically a firm procurement document. It's already been negotiated. The, the contracted prices and lead times are typically already hard, hard-coded, but, but they change constantly because of outside factors out of your control and even out of the supplier's control. You know, the reality is these organizations are relying on trading partners globally that are outside their four walls, and they don't have visibility to the same data that you as a buyer may have. They're just looking at a static purchase order that says these are the hundred line items on this purchase order, the, these SKUs, these quantities, and these due dates. Right. It, and what happens is, in a good scenario, a supplier will acknowledge those purchase order lines and say, "All right, I see these purchase order lines. I can process them as is." Or here's you know fifty changes that are going to have to happen. And at that point, those changes typically die in the vine. They get lost in an Excel sheet. They get lost in an inbox. If a buyer has the ability and time to, to miraculously do this, they'll go update, manually key in the changes to the ERP system that they negotiate and agree on. And those changes are, you know, due dates, split lines to so the short shipping, you know, one line into three shipments, price changes, you know, PO line, part number, revision changes. Right. All of those impacts, significant impact to, to you know, risk of hitting customer on time delivery and revenue. So those changes are usually driven by supplier side downstream issues, supplier performance issues, part constraints, you know, other orders that right. have higher priority. So there's just a significant number of inputs and outputs that are external factors that are outside your control. So the best thing you can do as an organization is, is provide your trading partners with real-time data as it's changing constantly. The demand data will constantly change. So as the MRP may run daily or weekly or however frequently right. they set it, it will significantly change even live purchase orders by saying, we found inventory, so push these orders out. We don't need them as fast as we thought. Or cancel them altogether because we found more than enough inventory or another sales order canceled, right? Or we've misplaced inventory. We need to expedite all these orders to pull all these parts in faster or whatever else may change, right? A revision, a part engineering drawing may have changed, all of those changes need to be immediately delivered to the suppliers, but some are more important than others. So we have customers that, you know, pre-source day, they were managing tens of thousands of PO lines in a PO exception report every single day that the ERP was kicking out. So as a buyer, you're combing through those to say, which ones of these do I really care about that I need to go make sure that the supplier can react to. So the source day drives that automatically. So the purchasing people are the ones who are creating this purchase order and they're working with their su suppliers to make sure that they can support the demand within the company. And again, the, the changes are driven sometimes by the the demand that you're you know, the, the, the internal to the purchasing agent's business, right. but sometimes the supplier says, I can't deliver that. 
And so it might be one of those questions where you say, I can't deliver the goods for you to do the blue sweaters, but I can deliver the goods exactly. to deliver the red sweater. Do you want those? Yes. Um, and then you go back to your demand guys and say, "Would do you want this? And they say, no, but give it to us anyway. So it's, it's interesting because it's a document that is the law, right? We have, we're not going to ship anything until we agree on the purchase order, but it's whipsawed on both ends. So it's really just trying to constantly, it's like a teeter totter, right? <laughs> You're trying to. It's, it's the like, bullet effect, right? I mean, it's, yeah. It's reactionary. And, you know, I think people at any level, they need bad news early and often, right? And that, that bad news ultimately leads to, you know, better communication to customers, to, to sales forecasts, to whatever it may be. You can make more proactive logistics and freight decisions to overnight parts. If, if you knew that the supplier was going to ship it six weeks late, but you didn't find out until after they shipped it, now you have ocean freight 30, 45, 60 days of delay as well. If you had known that prior through visibility down to a part number, you, you could have air freighted half the order that was more critical than the rest. Yeah, we have to get, again, I, I'll say this to all my listeners who are transportation, logistics, warehousing guests, we have to become more aware of these problems within our within our customers because as we solve the problem of, and it's not an easy one, so we solve the problem of matching up trucks to loads. Right. The next thing is don't be just an expert in getting trucks, be an expert in a supply chain and be able to say, hey, look, I can help you from order to cash. And again, we want the ability to collaborate between order and cash so we can constantly make, and there's always going to be the adjustments where, Hey, my driver is not going to be there till 4 PM. Is that going to be okay? So we want to be the ability to collaborate on those in real time. So order to cash is great. Visibility order to cash is great. The ability to collaborate from order to cash is what we're really looking for because we're never going to have that perfect order that goes to the system. Well, I should say we have some, but not enough. Yeah, you, you'll get the ones that you don't care about. <laughs> that's that's. Uh... So you're solving a big problem. I'm just curious, why aren't the ERP companies sell, solving this problem? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. So many ERPs will will create what they call a, a vendor portal, right? Where it's it's typically a, you know a glorified SharePoint site, and and some of them are better than others. There's there's some big enterprise ERPs that have pretty strong portals. The real challenge with those portals is supplier adoption, supplier value, and ease of use. Right. So when, when you have a portal for a named ERP, that portal is built for that one customer and their suppliers. It's not a network, right? So it's a it's a one one to one one to many, not a many to many. So in, in our ecosystem, what we built and, you know, architected from day one was we wanted to build a marketplace where the value to our customers who are paying us to do the procurement through their suppliers on the platform has to be huge, obviously. But just as equally important, if not more important, is their suppliers, their trading partners that are using the platform on behalf of them as the buying organizations, you know, has to also be equally as valuable to them and, and, and drive greater automation, greater visibility, enable suppliers to be more successful in delivering more accurate purchase order on time delivery in full. So, you know, we're, we're driving an immense amount of data through the collaboration and transaction data that we have. So, you know, $125 billion worth of materials have been procured through our platform in the last four years. So when you say it's a marketplace, so I want, let's just say I, buy, I need to buy these material for my sweaters. I have some suppliers that I use. I, I get them into using SourceDay, but you're telling me there'd be other suppliers I could also use with that? 
Exactly. And what's been great through economies of scale and, and through our growth is, you know, we have over 13,000 material suppliers globally using SourceDay as a part of our network. So they, what kind of materials that are already in there? Anything and everything you can imagine. We've, we have been fortunate to grow, you know, industry agnostic and ERP agnostic. So we have, you know, consumer goods. And what you mean by that is when you say agnostic, you mean, I don't care. You're not, you don't, you're not of the manufacturing religion. You're not of the retail right. religion, whatever comes. And so do your, do your customers bring their supply base and say, use this? They, yeah, they do. So part of our unique value add to our customers that, that ERPs, you know, struggle with because of the way their models of their businesses work is they're, they're an ERP organization. They're not a marketplace and they great, they build great ERPs and great technology. And we partner with many of those ERPs and a go to market to bring their customers into our platform. So what's unique to us is when we onboard a new customer, they may have 10 to 20 or 30 or even just two buyers that, that use our platform daily. And it becomes kind of their sales force as a seller, right? But this is their sales force as a buyer. They're using source day and they use it for dashboards and data, exception management, collaboration, right. and, and, and really, you know, just being in sync with their suppliers and getting out of email. They tell us here's our 2000 or 100 or 50 suppliers. And we, we want you to go on board all or some of them. And, and we'll, you know, we'll go on board. Typically, we'll see anywhere from 10 to 90% of the suppliers that they work with already in the platform. They're already using it with another customer that we have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's nice. So, so basically, basically, if I start working with you guys, I can, I'm using my existing ERP. You guys got a marketplace to all of these different suppliers. And ideally, as I'm, I'm working with them, I can have better, faster, clean PEOs. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and I know what's happened. Like, um, again, I have a daughter who works in procurement. And one of the things she said is like, they were, it's a vaccine. So they had PPE, personal protection equipment, but they had very high standards. It wasn't just the regular mask. So it was specific and there's suppliers all over the world, but she's working with a couple of them. But as soon as they're out and they were out, yep. <laughs> right. PPE equipment or PPE is, um, Made in Wuhan, nice suppliers in Wuhan. So it would be nice to be able to say, okay, my existing providers can't get this done right now, but um, I need this because I'm trying to keep my plant open. I have access to a, a provider that I didn't know about. Yeah, we we gave you know a great story and segue is when the pandemic broke and really became a PPE shortage nightmare. We actually were reached out to by an official at the state of Texas who had been at a company customer of ours formerly, and he was he was uh, enlisted to, to kind of join a, a committee to, to kind of go bring PPE in for Texas. So we actually were able to use our platform's data to go find suppliers for specific SKUs that they could go get these you know, parts and pieces and, and materials from. And we were able to make introductions to suppliers that they would have otherwise struggled to find or, or locate. And, and they were actually able to procure the PPE they needed through our platform. And, and we did it obviously for the state of Texas as, as just a charitable you know, time of, and, and uh, very helpful. I didn't know Texas had COVID. That's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was very brief. <laughs> <laughs> well, that this is solving a real problem because, again, I think the pandemic showed us where we were brittle. 
where it showed us where we had some some issues and i think we're gonna we're gonna grow from this we're gonna have more resilient supply chains but i think what we also need is if we're gonna speed up this process we're gonna have to do it with technology and it's been a long time since we've we we, we identified this problem but we still haven't fixed it so I love what you guys are doing because there is a problem that is inherent in the alignment, trying to align supply and demand is an age old problem. And traditionally what we've done is said, we will just carry a whole bunch of inventory. But if you're carrying inventory, that's just money sitting on the shelves. And a lot of it goes obsolete. A lot of it, especially in manufacturing companies, there's always an update to a part. So you say, oh, well, these are these are the old part, the poor quality parts. Do you want to still use them? No, <laughs> right? And create a different problem. Yeah. And a lot of times you look at factories, distribution centers, they're much bigger than they need to be. Why? Because we carry so much extra inventory. And and if you don't carry that inventory, what happens? There's a spike in demand or you lose your supplier for some reason and the boss shoots you for that reason. So you're always in this position of saying, I need to optimize, get the right amount, but not too much. So anyway, let's let's switch gears here for a second. So you got this fast growing company. You, you got like a hundred employees. Now you guys have been booming. You got venture capital money. And what are some of the things you've learned along the way? What are some of the, the, the uh, lessons learned? Probably painfully. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's been many. It'd be hard to pinpoint just, just any one. You know, I think some of the great lessons learned, you know, are, you know, listen to your customers at all costs, and, and you know, not that they're always right, but I think customers, you know, are, are really your, your guiding light in, in how the platform needs to add value to their day to day, and you need to also keep that into a context of you're trying to disrupt that day to day to a new normal of digital and, and automation and using data more intelligently and, and helping them make more automated, better decisions. So I think some of the, you know, biggest lessons were, you know, uh, outside of product development, were really hire great people around you. You know, there's, there's nothing better that, you know, that, that can replace experience and talent and making sure that you, you've got people that have been there, done that at each and every scale of business growth. Uh, the people that get you to 1 million in, in revenue won't be the same people necessarily that get you to 5 million, 10 and 20 million. You're going to have to recognize those changes quickly and make hard decisions. And in some scenarios, I, I waited too long in, in recognizing scale issues within people, you know, that can be detrimental to growth. Right. So you're, you guys are based in Austin. So obviously it's Austin is a very big and important tech scene. And then, by the way, I should, we, when we're talking offline, we talk about San Marcos. I think San Marcos is evolving. I talked to, I forgot the guy's name, the guy who was in charge of the economic development of San Marcos. And I think, what was that about an hour away from you? 30 minutes? Yeah, it's about 30, 30, 45 minutes. And that is becoming more of like a logistics and supply chain hub. In a big way. And Austin is more of the tech hub. Correct. So you're, you're, you're in the right space. And by the way, San Marcos might be the next great big city in Texas. Am I right to say that? Yeah, you are. And it's, uh, you know, my wife went to school there and, and you know, it felt like it was, uh, you know, hours away at the time. And now you, you drive south of Austin and you feel like you're, you don't skip a beat. You're in San Marcos. It's just one big metroplex now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading about San Marcos as maybe the fastest growing 
I don't know how many people live there now, but it is booming. And it, it, and if you're talking logistics and supply chain, of course, we talk about Laredo and El Paso and some of the other border crossings. But before long, we're going to be talking about San Marcos if we're not already doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, just northeast of that, you've got the, the new Tesla Giga factory and all of their supporting surrounding suppliers that are building. So, Tom, uh, do we all have to move to Florida or Texas or are we allowed to stay where we're at? Just, just the ones that we want. <laughs> so, so you've been hiring there. Are all your employees there or do you have some that are remote? They're not. I mean, I think, you know, pre-pandemic, we were pretty uh, culturally grounded in Austin and, and had a strong office culture. And, and we, we really enjoyed the collaboration. Right, We're a collaboration platform. And, you know, we're also disrupting a, a large ecosystem. And we felt like having that connectivity of people here was best for us. And through COVID, it opened up new doors. And, you know, we have since hired probably a third of our workforce is just around North America in, in over nine states, maybe 10 now. And then people also in Canada on a full-time contract basis. And then sadly, and tragically today, we also do have people in the Ukraine, but they are all safe. Good. God. You know, I, I just interviewed somebody uh, last week who went to the Ukraine to hire in 100 employees for managing North America freight. So that is not unusual these days. No. And and I've always said it is the back offices of today are the tech hubs of tomorrow because um, wh- what happens is they tend to automate and get better and better. And the, the best practices are going to come from all over the world. And again, I, I, I mentioned Lean. This podcast is going to be... Um, Produced by Natalie, who works with me through Lean Staffing Solutions, Lean Solutions Group now. And they have 5,000 back office people in Colombia. Wow. I think there's 300 plus logistics companies who work with Lean, including the majority of the top 20. So it's uh, it is a quickly becoming the model that we all use because I think we can get good good headcount and it's it's not as volatile as we got over here. Absolutely. I think for us now, we're just looking for the right people, right? And and no matter what your location is, we just want people that want to be a part of the disruption. Yep. So you've you've grown rapidly. You've hired the most of your people down there. And so what was what was one of the things you learned during COVID? Well, <laughs> how to work with three young children at home every day. And, and uh, no, I they think don't, they don't honor boundaries, do they? No, never. Yeah, I, I you know, I jokingly right, I enjoyed it. I got to see more of my my youngest daughter's early days than I did with my two older cho- children. And no, but joking aside, you know, I think learning to, you know, help people, you know, have a, a better work life balance and, you know, watching, you know, people live their lives also while working was was very humbling and, and uh, created a new personal connectivity with us as a young team and, and helped us grow and learn to uh, appreciate each each and every one of us more than, than we maybe had before. Yeah, I think I, I say this as one of the youngest baby boomers. I'm on the tail end of that. I, I, I didn't go to Woodstock. I didn't uh, <laughs> fight in the war. My generation's not going away. We're not digging ditches. We aren't working in factories. So it, it's... we. Um, I enjoy my work. A lot of people could say the same. I think you'll see them switching jobs, but I think that my generation is going to stick around. You'll see see us for a lot longer than you Good. planned. <laughs> but um, I also think that you know the younger generation is expecting more of a work life balance. And I think even people who might have been mid career when they found themselves sitting at home pondering this pandemic and what the impact it might have, it changed. It changed maybe woke up priorities. Everyone said my yeah. family is my top priority. My health's my top priority. Well, 
is it really when I'm commuting for two hours a day and working 10 hours? Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, let's get some final thoughts on this, Tom. So again, tell me a little bit about who you serve and what problems you're solving for them. And then how we, well, first off, just tell me that. Who who are you serving? Who are your biggest customers? And then who's your sweet spot? And then what problems are you solving for them? Absolutely. You know, we have customers as large as Dell and uh, large industrial manufacturers and in, in the Fortune 500, you know, as big as 20 plus 50 plus billion dollars, all the way down to, you know, 10 to 20 million dollars in revenue. And, and they're typically organizations that are all the way from, you know, consumer brands, you know, direct to consumer apparel, health and beauty, high tech electronics, all the way to automotive, transportation, aerospace, oil and gas, healthcare, medical device, uh, packaging, to name just a few. I mean, we're, yeah, we're every, in every everybody you can imagine. So what problem are you solving for them in that those verticals? Yeah. And the, and the problem really is just getting them out of archaic manual processes that, that lead to inefficiencies of overbuying an inventory, going back to having obsolete stale parts that you have to write off and, and then, you know, also re- responsibly destroy and, and recycle as best you can. Eliminating all of that waste in the world by really enabling our customers to have true just-in-time visibility and delivery of the parts that they need when they need them, rather than overbuying or underbuying and then getting stuck losing customers or overpricing yeah. yourself out of the market to catch up. Most of our customers erode their cash flows and their margins by having to be reactionary to supplier misses. And it's not the suppliers are bad. They just don't get the ability through real-time visibility outside of Excel to, to understand what they need to deliver and when they need to deliver it and, and what's the priority. What are the expedites that, that I need to focus on most? And do you help that? I mean, and, and they're using the suppliers that you have already in your system and maybe so they bring their suppliers along to use the system and then they get access to hopefully a lot more suppliers that maybe are better fit than their existing ones, right? Absolutely. And that, you know, that's the direction that I'm most excited about where we're going. So we're not just a, a procurement collaboration around purchase orders. So we also have an RFQ module, which is effectively a marketplace where our customers put request for quotes out as simple as what you would think of you would do as an Excel sheet, but they're sending it out to suppliers that, that we're helping them potentially get introduced to using supplier scorecards and, and data around what suppliers can deliver based on historical transactions. So we're going towards in the near future, a true marketplace of connectivity where we can begin to make introductions between buyers and right. trading partners. And then on the tail end of that, we're also using all of the data uh, around transactional action-based procurement activities that are happening that show us true on-time and full supplier performance around quality, price part variance, lead times, and, and all the way down to every component and responsiveness that you can imagine that gives us confidence in what a true supplier's score or rating is. And they're using that data as a customer on the buying side to make their ERPs, scheduling and planning and production more intelligent so that they can make better, more efficient buying decisions. And in the very last mile of all that, we, we have a couple of other new solutions uh, as a part of our platform that help with last mile freight delivery. So we have track and traceability with over 450 carriers globally that, that can provide real-time visibility to where their shipments down to a single part on an advanced ship notification or a PO are in, in transport. And then we have an accounts payable module. Because we're tied to all the procurement processes, 
we're creating more accurate data in the ERP system around purchase orders, making the receipts more accurate when they're receiving goods in because they're continuing collaborating and updating the PO in real time as to what the suppliers are actually going to ship. So when an invoice gets received, we're able to capture the invoice, OCR, reconcile it across three and four-way matching, and then auto-voucher those receipts into the ERP system. Now they can capture prepaid discounts, pay their suppliers more accurately and more timely. Right. Yeah, you're streamlining that whole that whole purchasing process, but also hopefully um, taking out, helping us update those POs in a real time. And and again, I think so often when we when you look in the transportation logistics space, we don't hear we don't hear from our shippers soon enough about what they're shipping. And part of it's just because we can't get those POs right. We can't get the orders right. Right. And if we can clean up this process, streamline this process, I think we're all, I think it's going to save, you're going to save money in the procurement process, but you're also going to save money downstream in transportation logistics because absolutely any transportation logistics person will say, give me one thing. That one thing would be an extra day or two to find that truck, especially in this crazy market. And sometimes you're paying such a premium price for it. And you mentioned OTIF, on time and in full. Sometimes if you're in transportation logistics, you think of on time and in full, and that's a or OTIF as if I don't do it right, I'm going to get fined. And I'm going to get right. fined 1% of what that the value of the shipment. That's the small problem. Getting fined is the very small problem. The bigger problem is I have an empty shelf or I have a factory that's not running far more costly than that. And then potentially if we're talking retail, that your peanut butter is not on the shelf. So you say, I'm going to try out this competition. And by the way, that's, I drink a ton of Diet Coke. The reason I started drinking Diet Coke is the store that I went to did always ran out of Diet Pepsi. So I started drinking (laughs) Diet Coke and I realized I liked it better. Oops. And I drink and, and, but that happens. We can't have that happening. If you have empty shelves, it's not just the fine, it's not just the, uh, it's lost sales. It's also your customer sampling other products. These are disastrous. And by the way, I should also say, companies are getting eliminated from business based on their OTIF scores. Every day. So if I say, hey, I've got 25 peanut butter suppliers, I want to get down to seven. How are you getting rid of them? OTIF. Yeah. It's the easiest thing to, to really measure, right? And, and we're giving real-time visibility in, in analytics and dashboards and, and for some of our customers that have large global multi-site facilities, you know, it's hard for them to, you know, collaborate and pull all that data together to start to see where they're missing out on economies of scale and what suppliers and what regions are doing better than others that they should be having conversations with. And, and leaning out your operations through data is, is really the direction that we're taking our customers. Excellent. Excellent. Tom, what I'm going to do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can reach out and talk to you there. I'll also put a link to your website and any other links that your marketing people give me. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think you're solving a problem that is, uh, well, you're solving more than one problem, but I love that we're starting to automate so we can make better decisions to streamline this purchasing process, clean it up. Because again, it's, it's, it's hard. Absolutely. And it really does touch all of us over in the transportation logistics side and warehousing side of the business. Without a doubt, it's it's great that you know we can now help partner with the last mile by helping solve the first mile. And I think <laughs> yes, those two, exactly. Those two are tied together at the hip. You can't have one without the other. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate your time. Thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.